0: Okay, welcome to The Popular Show. I'm James A. Smith, as ever, and today I'm joined by Toure Reed, who is a historian at Illinois State University, as well as the author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. Thanks very much for joining us on The Popular Show, Toure.
1: Thanks for having me, James. It's a, an honor to be here. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, just what do you think I
0: got to lose? i'm gonna leave you with the backlash blues you're the one who'll have the blues not me just wait and see Can we start with the the term of your subtitle race reductionism uh we hear a lot at the moments uh, on the left about class reductionism as a term for kind of suspicious kinds of Marxism that don't pay adequate attention to other uh, forms of exploitation and oppression. Um, Could you explain what, what you mean by race reductionism?
1: Sure, I guess the best way to explain what I mean by race reductionism is to explore what class reductionism seems to mean at this point, if you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah, great. And I think when I'd first uh, begun thinking about how to uh, approaching this book um, back in 2015, I had thought of a class reductionist as someone for whom race, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, et cetera, were presumed to be secondary or inconsequential to the lives of people, right? And what was odd to me about that is that what I had some difficulty making sense of anyway, was that. Despite the fact, let's say, that Cedric Johnson, Barbara Fields, Bernie Sanders, um, my father Adolf Reed, or, or I certainly were always clear that racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera, were in fact consequential to people's lives. Um, none of us had made cases against the need for anti-discrimination policies. To the contrary, I mean, at, at least in my own case, I've long been I would say a pretty ardent defender of affirmative action policies, let's say, and other anti-discrimination measures. Despite the fact though that, you know, I had never made the case uh, that that racism was a thing of the past, right? Um, I was often classified and people with my kind of politics were often dismissed as class reductionists. And it dawned on me after a while that what an alleged class reductionist was was someone, not someone who had uh, insisted that racism was inconsequential to the lives of people, but rather I think class reductionists tend to be people, alleged class reductionists tend to be people who actually take the social constructiveness of race seriously. If race is a social construct, then what that means is that it's an ideology um, that is part of, again, a, a political project and a political economic project that was conceived going back to the time of slavery as a way to treat as natural inequalities that are, you know, the product of social relations or what we might think of as, as capitalism, among other things. And, and so then what that means is that racism and race do not exist apart from the social world of human beings, right? Uh, I, I've come to realize that, again, for many who level the charge of, of class reductionist that, that people like myself, the problem is that we insist that racism is in some part an expression of capitalist exploitation. It does not take on a life of its own um, and instead, again, expresses or is a way to treat as natural inequalities that are the product of capitalist social relations. So if that's what a class reductionist actually means for for critics of of those of us on the left, then what the other side of that coin is, is that they are guilty of race reductionism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a race reductionist is someone who imagines that racism exists independently of a a political economy or of capitalism, if, if one would prefer that. Uh, and among other things that race and this is the, the favored term of of this uh, of such individuals, that race has taken on a life of its own. And if race has taken on a life of its own, then it is no longer the product of social relations. It's certainly not an ideological or cultural construct because ideologies need people. Culture <laughs> needs people. Yeah, they need society. Right. Um, in other words, in order to have any kind of life to them. So one more time, a race reductionist is someone who imagines that racial inequality is the product not of the material world per se, um, not of you know an ideology that's, that's bound up with uh, capitalist production, but instead that a race reductionist believes that racial inequality is the product of race, which exists apart from the social world that human beings have made.
0: So you mentioned Bernie Sanders, uh, and in a lot of ways, his project gave political expression to arguments that that you'd been making. That, as as you say, Barbara and Karen Fields, uh, Cornell West, Adolf Reed, your father, all these people have been making that um, the kind of answer to America's undeniable. Uh, racial inequalities and problems of racism had to be found in the material realm. That, that a, a political project that sought to remedy those things would have to start by bringing about a a more material equal, materially equal society, and that that would need to be done on universalist grounds. Bernie, like. Most of the people I mentioned opposed the sort of fashion especially associated with ta Coates a, a few years earlier for arguing for special offers for black people, black voters, uh, arguments for, for reparations, things that, as it were, divided the electorate racially and, and made um, made specific offers to specific groups. Um i I agreed with that like like you. um but is there a way in which that position, your position, has taken a, a pretty big defeat in the past year from a number of angles. i mean bernie the bernie gamble that black voters could be carried into a progressive project on the basis of a universalist offer. He was rejected as as badly as he as badly as he was in in 2016, in 2020, by black voters. Uh, what we've seen since with the Biden and, and Harris presidency has been um in policy terms a lot of continuity with trump but aesthetically at the level of presentation the most race reductionist (laughs) of uh of of performances i've seen in american politics a total kind of embrace of uh this kind of this discourse of um you know certain essential qualities belonging to the identities of white people and black people and then meanwhile on the right as well um uh Trump seems seemed to move from a platform in 2016 that had a lot of similarity with Bernie Sanders to in 2020 kind of dropping a lot of that economic populism and instead embracing the old the old-fashioned kind of race reductionism of a, a straightforward, sort of race baiting and, and attacks on um anti-racism and so on a much more kind of traditionally conservative culture war platform and although he lost the election he, he did so with uh an extraordinary amount of support and uh, an unprecedented increase in the vote so i guess what i'm saying is across the political spectrum it, it seems like the the argument you're you're making w- was rejected how, how did you kind of See that play out, and and what do you think the next step is, really? Sure. Um, let me
1: handle this. I'll, I'll handle it this way in 2008 and 2012, I voted for President Obama. Um, I voted for President Obama in 2012 because I was horrified by Mitt Romney and uh the Tea Party insurgency. In 2008, I was very reluctant. So, so I saw my 2012 vote as a check on, um, what was in effect Trumpism, right? Or at least mm-hmm. the first of Trumpism in 2008, I was a critic of president Obama. And to be clear, I was a left critic of, of president Obama. Uh, and I stated at the time to all of my friends and family across the racial spectrum, in the case of my friends, that um, one of the things that I was really concerned about with President Obama, and this was wed to his post-racial vision, which I've said elsewhere I don't think was a post-racial vision per se, but it was a post-racism vision, since what he was encouraging blacks to do is to stop complaining about racism while Obama was himself attached to racialist, or we could even say racist, tropes about poor black people. But, but apart from that concern about Obama, which was real and omnipresent for me, I said to my friends and family uh, across political and racial lines among my friends, that I feared that if President Obama proved to be black Bill Clinton, uh, that in other words, that he proved simply to be another neoliberal Democrat, um, like, I don't know, Bill Clinton, um, or you, Make a case that Jimmy Carter was the neoliberal, the first neoliberal Democrat uh, ahead of Reagan. But if we think of those two, my concern was that if Obama again proved to be another neoliberal Democrat, meaning that he'd failed to redress the real material concerns of many of the white people who had voted for him, and his showing among white voters was quite impressive. I mean, I I literally lost money on the 2008 presidential (laughs) election because it never occurred to me in 2008 that America would elect a black man president, period, let alone one whose middle name was Hussein.
0: But uh, (laughs)
1: nevertheless, and I was glad to lose that money in in context, thanks to Sarah Palin. But I I feared, as I put it to folks at the time, that Obama would uh, be our Weimar Republic, that ultimately what would happen is not unlike Carter before him, not unlike Bill Clinton before him, that Obama would pave the way for a racist, right-wing populist uh, coming out of the Republican Party in either 2012 or 2016. I feel that I called that one. Um, And (laughs) I'm certainly glad, again, that that he won in 2012. But I had been fearing Trumpism, uh, not, not Donald Trump, per se, but the politics that Donald Trump would represent. Going back to 2008, because his history, if you will, had taught me that centrist Democrats who'd failed to meet the material needs of the masses of working people across racial lines, um, paved the way for resentment of the sort that manifests in racial uh, racial fear mongering bound up with economic inequality with fears of of decline. So. Race reductionism is, and and you did make reference to Donald Trump reading from the playbook of the classic race reductionist, I, I believe, um, was actually the backdrop, if you will, for my concerns of how we would get to Trumpism, that that liberal policymakers and, you know, conservatives do what they're going to do, right? I don't vote Republican, so I'm less invested in what Republicans are doing. Their playbook is pretty transparent, I think. Um yeah. but, but, Conservatives have, have long tended to attribute racial disparities to the failings of poor Black and Hispanic people in the United States, right? And often enough, um, you know, it's, it's race in the classic sense of the word, right? If you get from someone like Charles Murray, uh, let's say. Um, but, but the use of culture, what conservatives have meant by culture, isn't really culture in the sense of uh, that anthropologists have long understood culture to mean which is the folks' common sense, basically, about the lived world that they share. But in, instead, culture means something more in the realm of epigenetics. Well, interestingly enough, and this is part of the point that I, that I make in Toward Freedom, is that among liberals, liberal policymakers lead on racial disparities, has oscillated between two frameworks, and they're both racialist frameworks. One is racism in the part of white racists, right? The other is race in the form of some attachment to some version of culture of poverty narrative. The fact of the matter is that ta C. Coates' read on post-war liberalism's failure to redress racial inequality, and certainly post-war liberalism, the Johnson administration and forward, had failed to redress racial inequality. ta Coates's read on what was behind that is about 180 degrees wrong, that he insisted that the problem had been that liberals were guilty of a kind of class reductionism that overlooked um, the effects of racism vis-a-vis Blacks. And of course, if you look at the details of the war on poverty, it's closer to being about 180 degrees, the opposite problem, that the war on poverty's failings were owed to a failure to consider the disproportionate impact mm-hmm. of industrialization, automation, and what we'd eventually know as deindustrialization, and then later public sector retrenchment on Black Americans. Now, here's the thing, because that might not sound like I'm answering your question, but I'm I'm setting it up with that that historical read. The fact of the matter is, it's no surprise that the position that people like myself, And Senator Sanders had advanced, you know, ended up not carrying the day. Um, It ended up not carrying the day because there was already a set playbook, right? I mean, Sanders uh, staked out. And of course, the position that that those of us who are left academics um, of the sort that I am, anyway, staked out is actually counter hegemonic. It was going to be an uphill battle on this front, right? Because everybody and their mother had, had long read from the playbook of either white racism or super predators were the backdrop or, or, or welfare queens or what have you, right? So um, again, white racists in one column, super predators, welfare queens, crack babies, etc. cetera, any other column. I would say that what was good and useful about, about Sanders is at least from my vantage point i think you touched upon on this with the setup given the hegemon the hegemony of race reductionism if you will within the context of american neoliberalism it never occurred to me that 43 percent of americans without um you know some sort of grassroots political movement nurturing these sensibilities would take to sanders's calls for a return to public goods oriented approach to government right And in fact, I mean, I would suggest that the success that he had in 2016, which I think to a degree transcended partisanship, right? I mean, as as did animosity toward him, which also (laughs) transcended partisanship, but the success that he had in 2016 actually spilled over into 2020 with respect to the issues that Democratic, Democratic hopefuls had attached themselves to. Um, the Joe Biden who um, ended up running for securing the Democratic nomination and running for president is not the Joe Biden exactly that I despised in the 1990s. Uh, and irrespective of the fact that he and Kamala Harris remain attached to one degree or another to sort of racialist frameworks, and there's a caveat there that, that's worth worth exploring. The fact that Biden had staked out positions in favor of uh, the pro-act, making it easier for workers to unionize, his insistence on and off about the need to to elevate the minimum wage, his handling of the the pandemic, right of of vaccinations, was certainly from from the vantage point of myself anyway, um, impressive, right? I was I was happy to get vaccinated as quickly as I was. Because I couldn't imagine being vaccinated in uh, March, I believe, is when I I received my first vaccine if President Trump had been elect reelected, right? So um it's it's complicated. I'm still not quite sure what to make of Biden. I presume that Biden remains a neoliberal democrat, but a neoliberal democrat who at least appreciates to one degree or another the value of modest redistributive downward redistributive efforts um, to make people's lives better, which I think is better than Bill Clinton and so far better than, than President Obama. So so again, I mean, it was going to be an uphill battle. I don't think that anybody in academia, on my team anyway, imagined that, that Sanders would have secured the 2016 nomination. Um, He he actually fared substantially better than I had anticipated, as I alluded to, and was cause for hope and optimism for me. Um, 2020 never occurred to me that he would secure the nomination, uh, even if if there were a couple of rays of hope. Now, that doesn't, all that stuff I said addresses many of your questions, but it didn't address the question of black voters, which may be worth playing with. Um, You know, I think. With the matter of black voters uh, in the Democratic primary, Sanders did reasonably well with younger black voters. Right, I think it was the under forty, and in general, he had done well with uh, voters under forty. Um, likewise, though, I think it's it's worth noting that in a place like South Carolina, James Clyburn was is an institution unto himself, and. Um, black voters are, of course, were capital D Democrats, right? Uh, in South Carolina, generally speaking, in ways that are maybe, in some ways, maybe in a more committed way than I am. I'm a capital D Democrat by registration, because I want to vote in primaries. Um, I'm a progressive, <laughs> so so <laughs> I've sat out a lot of Democratic, um, I've sat out a lot of presidential elections because if I wanted to be you know, neoliberal, I would be one, right? So if my option is neoliberal A versus neoliberal B, often enough, I've I, I tended to, to sit out. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, I think James Clyburn uh, had a proven track record in South Carolina of delivering for his constituencies. Biden had the backing of the Democratic Party. Um, if you under, Bernie Sanders absolutely did not. If you understood yourself to be a registered Democrat, and the one candidate has the backing of the Democratic Party, which means he has surrogates that you know and respect and appreciate like James Clyburn, then it makes a hell of a lot of sense that you might vote for um, you know, the guy, in this case, Biden, that your congressman endorses. The other thing, though, that's worth noting, it's cause for optimism, and then I'll you know, shut up, uh, is that there was an incongruity between what the voters who had voted for Biden in South Carolina attached themselves to, like Medicare yeah. raising the minimum wage versus who they voted for in the primary. And I think that that said a lot about the potentiality, right? The potential for using the Sanders campaign as a springboard to build an actual progressive movement. That's though an uphill battle uh, and we'll see how that plays out you also asked a question about related to reparation but I will set up
0: now yeah like I, well I, I guess what I, I certainly agree with um, the the claim that uh, however disappointing the the defeat of these kind of left populist formations across the left uh, across the West over the past few years has been it, it's clear that it has altered the of scope of political possibility and has also made it clear that other political tendencies do have to take on some redistributive measures that's true of the neoliberal democrats uh in 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 power now in the states but it's also true of the conservative party here in britain which has had to um however conscious this is it, it does seem like um part of the effort to exclude and, and finally extinguish Corbynism did necessitate taking on a kind of economic populism and, and a, a much looser kind of attitude towards public spending and, and debt and so on. Um, I, I guess what I'm intrigued by is the, the fact that while the while the left has had this huge disappointment, it has nonetheless put itself in a, a, a kind of much, a, a position far more Powerful or influential than was imagined to be possible in 2010 or, or maybe even in 2015. Um, meanwhile, in terms of um, in terms of black voters in America in particular, it's it, it's either stayed the same or moved backwards. I, I, I guess I'm also thinking of the fact that Trump's vote among black men increased as well. Um, I mean, you've, you've partly answered for a certain kind of contingency of the of the democratic vote, which is uh, democratic black vote, which has has kind of institutional reasons for there being a bit more ownership of it by the by the right of the Democrats. Um, I, so yeah, there's one one thing to throw out that that fact that, that it seems like the, the the radical left has moved backwards with black voters while even trump has moved forwards um but also i guess the other the other kind of thing i wanted to throw in at the same time is what your sense of the influence or importance of black lives matter is there because um although it's it's certainly the case that parts of the prospectus with that organization and movements uh cohere with the kinds of material demands that you've been making there's also a way in which um it's got a kind of race reductionism of its own it's also promoted um the and popularized the idea of policies that are wholly aimed at black voters and are not universalist in in the way that you've argued is is necessary um so i guess i'm wondering if um I, i guess i'm wondering on what your take on the fact that the any kind of next stage for the left, if there is going to be a, a, a candidate in the Bernie tradition in the next U.S. election, they're going they're going to have some relationship to Black Lives Matter. What what you think the consequences of that are? But then also, what um, what you make of the ability of the sort of of the Biden Harris kind of end of the Democrats, uh, their ability to seemingly um, I don't know, adopt the aesthetics of Black Lives Matter. I, I, I wonder, you know, where, where that plays in as a, as a factor in how things are realigning. Okay.
1: Well, again, you give me a lot to chew on. So,
0: <laughs> I um, tend to just throw it all out and <laughs> you, you, you grab whatever is appealing, you
1: know. <laughs> we should accomplish. So I'll, I'll start off with Trump and I'll try to work my way, mm-hmm. way down from there. Um, so Trump obviously did well with pretty much every demographic. Uh, he increased his share of the vote of every demographic except for white men, uh, where mm-hmm. I think he lost a percent. Uh, and Hispanics are complicated. I, I want to say that that he lost a percent with Hispanics in the national election, but depending on what state you were in, uh, Trump's share of the Hispanic wrote, vote went up um, yeah. a, a few percent, uh, right? A few percentage points. And I suspect, and, and of course, um, I want to stress that his share of the black vote, or the so-called black vote, and I think that's kind of the first problem. Thinking about yeah, yeah. Uh, racial groups in terms of, of the pollster categories that um, uh, that they often are in American political discourse, right? Um, or identity uh, politics would insist that they they are interest groups essentially, but share Trump's share of the so-called Black vote went up not just among Black men, but it also went up among Black women too, just as Trump's share of the white woman vote uh, went up a couple points. And I, I suspect, and it could be dead wrong about this, but I suspect that one of the things that, that was going on, one of many, is that Trump has a special kind of iconography in among of Black Americans. Not me. Um, I was first introduced to Donald Trump as a teen when I was a teenager, living in the New York Metro area, and I w- had become aware of him by way of the Central Park Five, and his stance yeah. vis-a-vis the Central Park Five. However, I don't remember how many dozens or hundreds of times President Trump, or, or sorry, Donald Trump, uh, so this is before he was president, had been mentioned in rap songs, uh, you know, prior to, to the election.
0: It was yeah. a lot. And yeah, I I think it was uh, jo- uh Josh uh, Joseph Green's book sa- uh, said that um, kind of before he fell in with Steve Bannon, Trump had actually been considering, uh, running as running for president as the ethnic minorities candidate, precisely because of the ratings uh, that The Apprentice had among sure. black and Latino voters.
1: And from my vantage point, and I'd said this in a in a different interview, um, that it struck me that there were some facets of Trumpism that really resonated quite, uh, or harmonized um, quite nicely with themes in uh, uh, uh,
0: uh, 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 uh. Mm -hmm. hip-hop.
1: From the 1990s forward, insofar as I'd long thought of hip hop, uh, which I used to listen to, but in my, when I was about 23 or 24, and this will be in the the middle 1990s, I stopped listening to lyrics because it was largely Reaganism with a good beat, uh, in terms of, again, the themes that drove, uh, the lyrics of of much of the popular rap music just wasn't, wasn't for me. It was essentially conservative, uh, in terms of the celebration of entrepreneurialism and, and the like. Uh, so, I would suspect that one of the things that's going on with Trumpism and its appeal to a stratum of African Americans is the um, embrace, you know, an expression of, of many Black people's embrace of uh, neoliberal orthodoxies, right? I mean, if, if one imagines entrepreneurialism as a vehicle for personal and group uplift, then while Trump is not a rags to riches story by a long shot, Nevertheless, your end game is to be the boss. Um, and he's the boss, right? Yeah. He was the boss of um a real estate outfit and then was understood himself to be the boss of America. You got that going on. You've got, I would say as well, you know, a lot of black folk are xenophobic. I mean, that's that's a real thing too, and really share. Um, and I wouldn't I would not reduce this to xenophobia, but many black Americans share um, anxieties about outsourcing of their work, uh, and likewise, uh, competition with documented and undocumented workers. And last on the list, I think that maybe this, well, maybe this is not accurate. This is not an accurate reading of uh, what Donald Trump was presenting, but Donald Trump certainly presented himself as a straight shooter. Uh, much like Bernie Sanders, uh, one who didn't mince words, and for Stratum voters who maybe were disillusioned about, on one side, disillusioned about the contrast between rhetoric and follow-through in the case of someone like Reagan or or Bush. um, They appreciated that Trump would likely follow through on building a wall and making Mexico pay for it. Um, but also many black Americans were just dis- had shared a similar disillusion about Obama's high mindedness, his public high mindedness, followed by the lack of follow through and doing things for black Americans. Not that Donald Trump would. But one more time, this is where I think the fact that black people have been bitten by the bug of neoliberalism, too, uh, comes into play. And the entrepreneur, the zeal for identifying entrepreneurs as the, the job creators, right? Rather than, I don't know, parasites <laughs> perhaps, but <laughs> but the job creators and what we should all aspire to be certainly would have contributed to, to Trump's appeal among black voters. And I think I can segue from that to BLM um, if you're okay with that. So, so BLM to me is complicated. And, and I think it should be complicated for, for most people because on the one hand, um, I, I think, because of, well, I think every black and brown person in America appreciated um, in the wake of the Zimmerman acquittal uh, and the immediate aftermath of the murder of Trayvon Martin at the hands of the sociopathic vigilante grown man that was George Zimmerman um, and a long tendency in um, the mass media, maybe in particular, but in the criminal justice system. To um, look past the challenges that Black people have faced uh, in, in the criminal justice system, or just in, in their quotidian experiences vis-a-vis random racists uh, and, and the like, as well as law enforcement, the the expression, I mean, the the hashtag Black Lives Matter had a certain visceral resonance with many Black folk, and and I would be among those who appreciated. The visceral resonance of the hashtag, right? Because it's certainly that the Zimmerman case, the the Trayvon uh, Trayvon Martin um, murder, and the Zimmerman case um, really did have quite an unpleasant, I I would say, and it's the nicest way to put it, um, it was an unpleasant reminder of a certain kind of marginality that many Black people. Um, all of us uh, to varying degrees feel. And I'll just add to to this this point that Trayvon Martin was a child, right? I mean, he was a child Mm -hmm. who was stalked and I would say assaulted by a grown man um, and then murdered by this grown man, right? Um, And the fact of the matter is there was a tendency in mass media to treat Trayvon Martin as if he were the thug, as if he were the 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 threat to civil society when it's transparent who the threat to civil society was, right? And it was it was clearly George Zimmerman. So again, I mean, we've got that element of BLM which helped to draw attention to problems within the criminal justice system. Where it gets complicated, uh, so I guess this is the other hand, just to start it with, with one hand, is as, as you allude to, as you move from the hashtag to the movement the hashtag that expresses the emotions of many blacks myself among them to a political movement it always struck me that the movement itself was hamstrung by the hashtag because if you move from the visceral cathartic statement about the murder of trayvon martin and the acquittal of george zimmerman to uh, constructing a movement intended political movement intended to counter mass incarceration and police violence uh, that again, centers on the notion that race is the issue that's driving it, then that's where BLM runs into some problems. Now, to further complicate things before I get into those problems, it's worth noting that the horizontal organization that is BLM can't be condensed into one framework, right? I mean, there are many BLM activists who have, in fact, good class critiques of mass yeah. incarceration, and that's worth worth noting. But nevertheless, um, the contention that mass incarceration or police violence are owed to racism, period, or even principally, I, I think is statistically and historically difficult to defend, right? I mean, it's statistically... Difficult to defend if you look at the inmate population, let's say, and there's no doubt that that people of African descent are far and away overrepresented among the inmate population, somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the inmate population. But 35 to 40 percent of the inmate population is not the majority, even if it's an overrepresentation, right? Um, and just yeah. home, blacks are 13 percent of the total population, so it's a it's a great overrepresentation. To be sure, Um, but if sixty percent of the inmate population is not black, then then it's kind of hard to make the case that race is the star of the show here. Um, The same is true for police violence, right? Police, you know, citizens who are murdered at the hands of police officers. Every year, blacks are somewhere between twenty-five and thirty percent of individuals who are killed by police officers. 25 to 30 percent, you're talking about 100 percent or more overrepresentation. That's outrageous. But it's also not the majority. And every year whites are the plurality or the majority. They're usually 50 to 52 percent, I believe, of the people who are murdered um, at the hands of of police officers. When you look at the profiles of the people who comprise the inmate population, they're disproportionately poor people. Right, I mean, there there are unfortunately the Justice Department doesn't compile statistics on class, um, which I think is a tell. They do compile statistics on the educational background of inmates, and I want to say college graduates are only about two to three percent of the total inmate population. Um, among blacks, I would I believe that about five percent. Of the inmate population uh, of the black inmate population is comprised of college grads. So that's about you know twice that of whites, but it's a small minority of, of the inmate population that holds a college degree, you know, irrespective of race. And part of what's going on that gets lost in the narrative and the racialist narrative. Um, and I, and I should say the narrow racialist narrative, because race is certainly a factor. Um, but part of what gets lost in the narrow racialist narrative about mass incarceration is the central role of economic inequality in its contribution to the inmate population. And I'll, and I'll handle this by way of uh, reference to the 1980s and, and 1990s. Um, you know, Black voters uh, in the 80s and 90s elected mayors, Black mayors often enough, who had pursued aggressive police strategies, right? Um, With the end game of those black mayors stepping up the role of policing in predominantly black neighborhoods. Black voters in 1992 and 1996, the majority of them voted for Bill Clinton. I didn't, I sat out the 1992, 1996 presidential elections because if I wanted to be a Republican, I would be one. But, but But I'm a minority among black voters, right? the vast majority of black voters had voted for Bill Clinton who ran on a tough-on-crime platform, right? I mean, the man literally dropped off the campaign trail in 1992 to preside over the execution of a mentally challenged black man uh, named uh, Ricky Ray Rector and to show that Bill Clinton was a different kind of Democrat. The reason that the majority of blacks had voted for you know a tough-on-crime president right, um, and Democratic president, and often enough and predominantly Black cities voted for Black mayors who would pursue tough on crime policing, is that, is 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 the high crime rates that um, had afflicted so-called Black communities. And I'm referring to them as so-called Black communities for a reason. Conservatives would tell you that those high crime rates were owed, and the crime rates were really high, right? The Black murder rate I want to say, in the late '90s, was seven to eight times higher than the white murder rate in that same time period. The black property theft rate in that same time period, late 1990s, was I think ten times higher than the white counterparts. Conservatives would tell you that the problem um, of you know what accounted for these high crime rates um, was <clears throat> you know the downstream legacy of the overly permissive the Democrats overly permissive welfare policies coming out of the Johnson administration, right? Which nurtured a culture of dependency and, a, and underclass ideology is what it would have been called back then. But, but a culture of poverty that had taken on a life of its own and that's less culture than it is race. But interestingly enough, Democrats in that same time period, certainly with Clinton, would likewise co-sign the idea that those high murder rates and property theft rates were owed to a culture of pathology afflicted blacks. Um, And as Hillary Clinton said, it doesn't make a difference where it started. The problem is it's here now. We have these super predators now and we need mandatory minimums and more. You know, expansion
0: of Charles Murray had a a lot of currency for New Labour at the same time. Uh, Yeah, absolutely wasn't partisan uh, at the
1: time. So that's what they would say, Mm -hmm. right? But really, you know, if you're a leftist, um, and I would like to think I'm a leftist um, because of my reading of the analysis rather than my leftism makes me read the data as, as a leftist, if that makes sense. If you're a leftist, what's really obvious is that there's a very strong correlation between poverty, joblessness, let's say, and even low wages, and violent crime and property theft. And that that correlation actually transcends race. It makes sense that blacks would be overrepresented among perpetrators of violent crimes. It makes sense that blacks would be overrepresented among perpetrators of property theft, not because of the cultural legacy of slavery, or not because of the cultural legacy of Jim Crow, or not because of the overly permissive Johnson administration's welfare state, right? But instead, because they're overrepresented among poor people, and Blacks were overrepresented among poor people, poor, poor people, partly because of the historic legacy of racism, which meant that Blacks did not have the same access to those good blue collar unionized jobs that whites were able to benefit from in much larger numbers than blacks from the from world war ii through the 70s blacks only benefited in really large numbers anyway from the 60s through the 70s and the strides that blacks have made between the 60s and 70s thanks in in large part to the anti-discrimination uh, policies of the civil rights movement right of the high point of the civil rights movement so thanks in large part to the civil rights Act of uh, civil rights act of 1964 which bars uh, discrimination on the basis of race national origin religion sex um, etc in employment and the like um, and also the civil rights act of 1968 which for all intent and purpose barred formal um, access to long-term mortgages, right? Black the the black middle class begins to grow between the 60s and 70s. But then what happens is by the end of the 70s and certainly 80s, this is and this is a decades-long process, is that those good blue-collar jobs largely gone, right? I mean they begin to go away um in in ways that impact they, they begin to decline sharply, particularly like in um, the auto industry where Blacks were in fact overrepresented by a lot uh, in the auto industry. Uh, thanks to you know fuel prices and competition with um, Japanese manufacturers and, and the like, um, we witness a rapid decline in between the 80s and the 90s of the US auto industry, which had a pretty devastating effect on Blacks. And of course, manufacturing writ large declines. That process begins actually in in the middle 1950s, but I think isn't felt fully until the 70s and 80s, right? The end of the 70s and early 80s. And so again, of course, Blacks are going to be overrepresented among perpetrators of these kinds of crimes and be overrepresented among the inmate population. This is not a denial of racism, right? Racism is certainly a facet of what's going on. But I think if one were to, if one were invested in redressing the sources of racial inequality in a criminal justice system, let's say, one has to advance a set of policies that are preventative, right? And the preventive policies would have to center on the creation of well-paying jobs, Um, stable well-paying jobs, I might add, since there is this correlation between poverty and crime of, of varying sorts, and of course, mass incarceration. It's just not reducible, unfortunately, to racism. If it were reducible to racism alone, it would be relatively easy, right? I mean, you could simply train police officers to stop being racist jerks. Um, and and you could, could train judges to stop being racist jerks, let's say. But um, unfortunately, we need real structural change. To achieve those ends, I had one other thing to 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 this um, narrative: the decline in support for um, indigent um, for for public defenders' offices, right? For indigent legal services, is a major facet of this story too. So that's another piece in which um, public sector retrenchment has contributed to the increase of blacks or the overrepresentation of of uh, black people in the criminal justice system because. The fact of the matter is, in a context in which public defenders are um, few and far between, or better yet, overworked overworked and underpaid, 95% of criminal cases are decided by plea bargain. So um, it makes it a hell of a lot more difficult, if one is innocent, uh, to fight for one's freedom in that context.
0: What a beautiful time we had. It's getting late, then we must leave each other. thank you for listening to this episode of the popular show the discussion continues in our patrons only part two episode over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod where you'll also have access to our complete archive of bonus episodes